As I'm sure uh, you're aware, uh, hymns are not inspired. Uh, God did not write the hymns in our hymn books, and he did not inspire the authors who did. And I don't know if you picked up uh, the line in the hymn we just sang, which has a healthy dose of poetic license in it. We should have picked it up because it nearly contradicts what we just read from God's words. Uh, It was in verse 4 of the hymn. Uh, It says, They rise, that's Jesus' enemies, They rise and needs will have, my dear Lord made away. A murderer they save, the prince of life they slay. Yet cheerful he to suffering goes. I don't know how you would describe the passage we just read in Mark chapter 14, but I don't think any of us would say, based on those verses, Christ went cheerfully to suffering. Now, of course, when this hymn was written, uh, that word cheerful may not have had quite the same meaning that we put on it today, it may have meant more willingly he went to suffering. And that's closer to the truth. But even then, it's not quite right. What did Jesus pray? Not my will be done, but your will be done, he said to his father. And whichever way we look at it, there was... hesitate to use the word, but there was reluctance in Christ's heart to go to the cross. And uh, I deliberately uh, tend to avoid uh, speaking on this passage because I don't really feel up to it. Uh, This is, in many ways, one of the deepest passages of Scripture, not particularly because it's so hard to understand in the sense of understanding what the words mean, but understanding what was happening in the heart of Christ as he sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane. So before uh, I speak on this, I'd just like to pray again and ask God to give us a true understanding of this passage. I'm just going to pray now. And then we will uh, go into the passage in more detail. But let's just pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. And uh, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who enables us to understand what we could not otherwise. And uh, I pray that you'd be with us now as we delve into this uh, incredibly deep, almost unfathomable part of scripture when we get an insight into the heart of Christ. Uh, Protect me from saying anything that is wrong or that is unworthy of you, Uh, but instead, Father, help us to see more clearly uh, the love that Christ had for us and, more importantly, the love that he had for you. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to break uh, this 
passage into three parts. Um, Next week, uh, God willing, I hope to look at this passage and a bit surrounding it more from the point of view of the disciples, particularly Simon Peter. Uh, But this week, I want to look at this passage from the point of view of Christ himself and speak less about the disciples and talk more about them next time. Um, That's the plan. Um, What I would like to look at this evening is, first of all, what Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Secondly, what Jesus said or what Jesus spoke in the garden. And lastly, what Jesus did. Uh, So we're just going to look at those three areas. What Jesus felt, that's verses 32 to 34. What Jesus said, that's verses 35 to 39. And then what Jesus did, that's verses 41 to 42 and trustfully we'll gain a greater understanding of what the cross cost Christ. But let's look first at what Jesus felt and as I said we see this in verses 32 and 34. Uh, we read, uh, then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane and he said to his disciples sit here while I pray and he took Peter, James and John with him And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. We have three words there, three phrases which are used uh, to describe Christ's Feelings, his attitude, his emotions at this time as he faced what was coming to him. We're told he began to be troubled. We're told he was deeply distressed. And Christ himself said that he was exceedingly sorrowful. And the Greek words which lie behind those words are Um, in some instances, unique in the New Testament. And they're hard to uh, translate in a way which really conveys the deep feeling that Christ was feeling in Gethsemane. Uh, The word translated troubled here speaks of a, a loathing aversion to something. When you see something horrific or disgusting and your heart recoils away from it and you are troubled by it and uh, there's a a hint of distress in that word as well. Uh, When Jesus describes himself as exceedingly sorrowful, uh, that word describes a a mental pain, uh, a distress where you are hemmed in from every side, and there's no way of escape. Um, It's interesting that uh, I believe the word Gethsemane, uh, the name of the garden where Jesus and his disciples were, uh, that name refers to the pressing of the grapes. Uh, It was an olive garden, and that name refers to the squeezing 
of the grapes. And that's something like what Christ's heart was going through at the moment. He is hard-pressed and hemmed in on every side, and he can't see any way of escape. Uh, A word we could use perhaps is consternation. Uh, It's an alarmed dismay that Christ is feeling. So much so, uh, we're told in other Gospels, that he even sweated great drops of blood. So great was his distress. Uh, He looked at what was about to happen to him, which as we've learned from previous passages, he full well knew what was coming. And he felt an extreme apprehension, uh, a dismay which was almost a terror of the ordeal he had to endure. I'm sure we can empathise to a small degree to that feeling. I think all of us have probably had times where we've had some task or something we have to, if, to face which we dread and which we fear and which we feel hemmed in on every side. Well, multiply that by a thousand And you have what Christ was feeling here. But that's remarkable, really, isn't it, when you think about it? Because for us to feel something like that isn't that baffling. Uh, We're finite. We're uh, human. We aren't all-powerful. So we often in life come across things which are too big for us and are horrific and cause us terror. But remember who it is here in the garden. This is Christ himself, the eternal son of God, who has existed from eternity past and will exist to eternity future. And yet here he is, if I can say it reverently and not going too far, trembling in the garden. And you think, what could bring God in human form, which was who Christ was and is, what could bring him to this state? What could he uh, approach which would cause him such consternation? It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Especially when we think of the many stories throughout church history and Old Testament history where the people of God, men and women of God, have faced death with courage, even in some cases with joy. Um, If you've ever read uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs or heard some of the wonderful stories of the martyrs and not all of them by any means but many of them face death and they almost seem to do it with anticipation a, a joyful <laughs> anticipation uh, even painful death and uh, prolonged uh, deaths full of suffering they take with calm and with peace And yet here we have their master, the king of kings and lord of lords, saying, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful and he's troubled 
and deeply distressed. What's going on? What is causing Christ such concern at this moment? Especially given the fact he's faced enemies and the potential of death and difficulty all the way through his ministry so far. And he's faced it with courage and bravery and boldness. Why is it different here? And that's why we move on to the second part, what Jesus said. Because when we listen to what Jesus prayed to his father, then we understand better what caused his consternation. Look at verse 35 onwards. God's word reads, He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus speaks uh, of the horror that is causing him such pain and distress in two ways in these verses. In verse 35, uh, it's referred to as his hour or the hour. And he says himself in verse 36, he describes it as this cup which his father is giving, giving to him. Uh, we've been reading about the hour in other passages before this. The hour refers to the death which Christ said he would have to experience. But what does the cup mean? What does Jesus mean by this cup? Well, thankfully, we don't need to guess. Uh, We don't need to sort of pontificate and try to come up with some imaginative answer for what is meant, what Christ meant by the cup. Because Christ himself was filled with the Old Testament. Uh, Almost every time he speaks, he uh, points back to things which were spoken in the Old Testament. And we learn a lot about the cup in the Old Testament. I'd just like to read a few passages from the Old Testament, from the poetry and from the prophets and from other places. And when we read the Old Testament, we get an understanding of what Christ meant by the cup. Now, let me read, first of all, from Job chapter 21, verses 17 to 20. And in the book of Job, um, one of the speakers in that book says this. They say, how often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows God distributes in his anger. They are like straw before the wind and like chaff that a storm carries away. They say, God lays up one's iniquity for his children. Let him recompense him that he may know it. Let his eyes see his destruction and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Job there speaks of the wicked and how uh, God deals with them and he speaks of how they will drink of the wrath of the Almighty, of God himself. 
Uh, Likewise, in Psalm 75, uh, in verses 7 and 8, we read these words. Uh, The psalmist says, God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For in the hands of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall be all the wicked of the earth. Drain and drink it down. Again, that psalm speaks of a cup which is in the Lord's hand, referring back to the wrath of God on the wicked. I'll give you another verse, Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 and 16. Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hands and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it, and they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. God tells Jeremiah to take his cup of fury and give it to the nations who are rebelling against God. And that's what God's cup is, and that's just a little sampling of verses on the theme from the Old Testament. The cup is, as it were, the cup of God's wrath and his anger and his fury against sin. Have you ever been angry at some some injustice that you've experienced? Perhaps it's against you. Or perhaps it's something against someone you love. Or perhaps you've heard about it on the news. Uh, Someone perhaps who was thrown in prison for something they never did. uh, And they lost years of their life because of that injustice. Or perhaps you hear of a child who is murdered. uh, A child who had done nothing wrong, brutally killed. Or fill in the blank with whatever injustice you have experienced. And you know that feeling of indignation that we all feel or we all should feel when we hear of an injustice that has been done and that anger and that wrath that we feel against the person who has done it. Well, multiply that to infinity and you get an idea of the righteous indignation that God has against the sin of this world. God created this world. It's his. And he created us and he poured out his love and his grace upon us. And he still pours his grace down upon us. But we turn our backs on him. It reminds me of a story I heard of a a man. He was on an aeroplane and he saw a, uh, a mother or a father. I think it was a father sitting with their child on his lap and uh, he saw this child fidgeting and uh, would not listen to what his father said and as the father tried to restrain him the child reached up and struck his father round the face and the man watching on realized that that little child couldn't even have done that without his father's upholding arms And that's much like our sin against God. When we shake our puny fists at him, we can only do that 
because God gives us the strength. And yet we turn God's grace and we use it for evil. We use it against him. We turn all his love for us and we respond with rebellion and rejection. No wonder God is angry. No wonder God has fury. And the Old Testament speaks of that fury as the cup of his wrath. But now... Here, in Gethsemane, the hour has come where God the Father is giving that cup of his fury, not to the nations, not to us who deserve it, he's handing it to his son. The hour has come for his son to drink it on behalf of anyone who will believe on him and Jesus is horrified by the prospect of experiencing it he's known it's coming all along Christ has come to earth willingly to accomplish this task which his father has given him Uh, we're told that he loves his people and he is doing it out of love for them and love for his father. But as he approaches it, and as he gets a full apprehension of what it is his father is asking of him, he has consternation, he has distress, because he realizes how terrible this cup is. And when you think about it, uh, that's the only response which really makes sense. It's actually the only response which brings true honor to God. Uh, If Christ had accepted it glibly, nonchalantly, carelessly, what would that have said about the wrath of God? What it would have said is, It's not that big a deal. His wrath isn't that great. It's not that significant. But what we see from the reaction of God the Son himself is we get a glimpse of how awful, how terrible, how fearful the wrath of God is. Such that God himself, Christ himself, would cower before it. And so even in his consternation, and even in his distress, he honours his father. Because that is the only sensible and honourable reaction to facing God's wrath. Anyone who responds in any other way is a fool. Christ, better than anyone, understood what the wrath of God meant what it was to experience never before in his existence had he even had so much of a as a shadow pass across the sunshine of his relationship with his father he had always enjoyed blissful and joyful communion and fellowship with his father but now for the first time in eternity He was not only going to experience a separation from his father, an 
non-experience of his smile, but the active demonstration of his wrath. And it brought Christ to his knees. This was the only thing that could have done so. Jesus, better than anyone, knew the horror of God's wrath because he saw and he experienced the magnificence of God's love. And did you notice what he said? In his humility and in his love, he said in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will but what you will. Even in the face of the greatest possible test of Christ's obedience, even in the face of the greatest possible test of his love for God and love for us, Christ remained an obedient and humble servant. He said, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And that leads to the third and last thing, what Jesus did. And we see this in verses 41 onwards. Uh, Jesus has asked his father, if it's possible, let this cup, let this hour pass from me. But then look what it says in verse 41. It says, then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? The them is the disciples. He says, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus says the hour has come. He's made his request to his father, and the answer has come back, no. It's not possible it's not possible for this cup to pass away such is God's love for us there was no other way for this to happen by the way just uh, I didn't intend to say this but just in passing uh, there's no greater evidence that Christ is the only way of salvation than these verses because can you imagine if there had been another way, that God the Father, who loves his Son with a greater love than any of us can imagine, do you think he would not have taken it? But he didn't. He, in essence, said, no. This is the only way. Either you take the cup, or they must take the cup. Those are the only options and when Christ heard that he accepted his father's will and he willingly took the cup because it wasn't his will but his father's will which mattered most it's quite amazing to ponder on Uh, we complain so much don't we when we have to submit to authority. Uh, If we're a child, uh, still under the 
uh, instruction of our parents, we might uh, rebel and kick against what our parents say. If we're an employee, we might gripe and complain about what our boss says or does and makes us do. Um, we may not like the direction a church might go in, or we might not like what our rulers in our country uh, might say or do. And we can so often kick against those who God has put in authority over us. And yet in these verses, we see Christ's perfect submission. When he's faced with a greater task than any of us will ever have to endure with far less reason than any of us will ever have because he did not deserve it in any way shape or form and yet he said I'm going to do what God wants not what I want we're so slow and reluctant to submit to anything and yet Christ in these verses was willing to undergo the greatest cost, to give the greatest cost, because of his love for his father. Because that really is the fundamental lesson of these verses. They do teach us Christ's love for us, that he was willing to go to the cross, that God himself, God the Father himself, was willing to, to sacrifice his son for us. But first and foremost, this teaches us about Christ's love for his father, his love for him and his willingness to do whatever his father asked of him. Nevertheless, in closing, it was for love of us. Uh, We're told in the book of Hebrews, as I mentioned this morning, uh, that for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. He knew it would be dark, and that darkness would be terrifying. And yet beyond that, there was a joyful dawn. And he would enjoy for all eternity anyone and everyone who would trust in him. That's really just what I want to close with uh, this evening. Uh, In light of the little glimpse, the tiny glimpse we've had into what it cost Christ on the cross, surely that should put into perspective the inconsequential cost that God asks of us. In fact, it's wrong to even speak of it as a cost. There is no cost, ultimately. Yes, life might be difficult for a time as we seek to follow Christ. But then there's an eternity of joy in the presence of the one who loved us enough to pay the highest price and give not only his life, but suffer agonies that we can hardly imagine. In light of that, what is there that we can't give up for him. Surely there's nothing. There's nothing which even comes close to competing, surely, with that sacrifice of Christ. And with that knowledge, we should joyfully and gladly give up whatever it takes for him.
And as we come to next week, we'll look in more detail uh, at what it meant for the disciples, but we'll leave it there for this evening. I would like to close by singing number 213. Uh, Number 213, which is really uh, a prayer, uh, a prayer of dedication to Christ in light of what he has done and paid for us. So it's number 213. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. With the chorus, lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. So we'll stand to close by singing 213.